Uh, good morning, if we haven't met yet, uh, my name's Hans and I should turn on my microphone, that is better, I'm sorry about that. Um, just one thing, uh, before, we, before we get going, one of the things that uh, we're going to do from now on is every Sunday before I get up and preach, I'm going to tell you about a book that you can get from me after. There's only going to be one copy of this, it's first in, first served. But what we want to do is we want to be a church that um, thinks well about the Bible, well about Jesus, well about theology. And so what, what I'm trying to do is get as many great books out there for you guys to read, to check out. And today's book is a book by John Dixon. Uh, John Dixon is a great historian and he's written a number of great books on Jesus. And this is, this is called A Spectator's Guide to Jesus, An Introduction uh, to the Man from Nazareth. A phenomenal book on Jesus. Um, if you want to grab this book, you could give it to a friend or you could read yourself. Um, as I said, it's a fantastic book. And uh, just come and see me after the service. And first in best dressed with that book. I hope there's not a stampede. But uh, you will need your Bibles open to John chapter 2. I should open mine also. And then we're going to jump in. And how about I pray as we look at uh, God's Word together. Let's pray. Our Father God, I pray that as we look at your Word this morning, that you would speak to us wherever we're at with you. That you would help us to see who Jesus truly is and who um, we're meant to be in response and Lord, you would shape our lives accordingly because we've encountered Jesus in your word. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a pastor, I've done a number of weddings, but, but before I was a pastor, I was actually a, a professional guitarist or a semi-professional guitarist, I should say, and I, and I played at a bunch of weddings. And I remember going to a wedding that was beautiful. It was amazing. They'd spent tens of thousands of dollars on this wedding, and, you know, there was tears uh, uh, and everything, and there was, ha there was joy and smiles and everything. But in one of the breaks between a couple of the sets that we were playing at, at the reception, I got talking to a few people. And it was interesting, one guy asked me what I, I was doing, and I said, actually, I'm a Bible college, I'm starting to be a pastor. And that's when he goes, oh, you don't want to do a wedding like this. And I was oh, why don't I, I, I want to do a wedding like this? And he said, oh, there's so much tension in this wedding. I'm surprised that you could see it. And uh, what I found out from him and a few other people I talked with, that a lot of the smiles were just plastered on. So some, some of the smiles were plastered on because there, was, there were people there who actually were still in love with the bride or the groom and they wanted to be the ones marrying them. There was smiles and tears, smiles plastered on and tears because there were factions in families and these people hadn't seen each other in years, if not decades, and coming together reminded them of all the issues that they had. There was tears because people in the service were reminded of the way they just blew open their marriage and totally stuffed it up and now their marriage is in is gone and the pain was there and I walked away from that wedding thinking that I'm never going to be naive about weddings again I'm never going to go into a wedding just thinking man this is going to be a beautiful occasion because weddings like a lot of other family occasions bring up all these different things and so now when I go to a wedding I always think what is this wedding going to bring and just the just like the way I look at weddings and think 
what is this wedding going to bring? A lot of us come to Jesus and we think, what is Jesus going to bring? You, you see, when, there's so many different perspectives on Jesus and there's so many different people's personal histories with Jesus. Some of us here may have grown up in very legalistic, uh, very fundamentalistic churches. And, and what we heard about Jesus was Jesus brings rules. Jesus brings guilt and condemnation. Jesus brings this kind of settled feeling, but it's a tense feeling where I'm, I don't feel safe when Jesus is mentioned because I feel like he's angry with me. Some of us have heard of a Jesus that is, that says, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, just live life however you want. But you think, well, if Jesus is so kind of aloof to my life, does he really care? Some of us have experienced a Jesus that is totally different. See, as we look at this passage, this passage asks, what does Jesus bring to life? But as we look in the next few weeks, the next bunch of weeks, we're looking at a, a selection of the miracles of Jesus. As we come up to Easter, we're going to see the big miracle, the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to see what Jesus brings to our life and how he changes and transforms our life. And so this is a really important series. It doesn't matter whether you are here and you are figuring out where you're at with Jesus. This is an important series for you to come to because you are going to come face to face with the historical Jesus. The very Jesus of the Bible is the very Jesus who walked 2,000 years ago. You are going to hear what he says and read what he does. Those of us who, like me, have followed Jesus for a long time, we're going to be hopefully blown away again by the power of Jesus, by the uniqueness of Jesus, and that we will once again fall on our feet and say, you are Lord and help me to follow you because of all that you have done for me. But today, we're going to ask the question, what does Jesus bring to our life? When you think of what Jesus brings, what do you think of? Does Jesus bring to your life guilt or glee? Does he bring rules or rejoicing? Does he bring fasting or feasting? We're going to see what Jesus truly brings as we look at this passage we're going to see three things. If you are taking notes, we're going to see three things. If you're not taking notes, guess what? We're still going to see three things from this passage. We're going to see, firstly, the problem. Secondly, the miracle. And thirdly, the sign. Firstly, the problem. Second, the miracle. Thirdly, the sign. Look, well, let's have a look and jump straight in into verse 1. Let's have a look at the problem. Verse 1 of John chapter 2 says this, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Can you see where this wedding is at? This is at Cana in Galilee. This is in a very small, uh, small town, a village, right in the kind of boondocks, the, the, the uh, kind of where all the bogans would come. In Israel, this is not Jerusalem. This is not the center. This is like, you know, where I, I grew up, Moree, Northwest New South Wales. It's that kind of town. It's a town which didn't make the news, and yet that is where Jesus is, and he is invited to a wedding. And weddings back in the day were huge deals, right? So, it, it, you know, weddings today are huge deals. I, I, I'm not saying they're not, but weddings back in Jesus' day would ha would go over like partying for a couple of days. 
And it was one of those things that this was the pinnacle of somebody's life. It's not when you have kids or you graduate from uni or anything. No, no. Your wedding celebration was the most important thing for your, for your whole life. And it was probably the most important thing that was ever going to happen uh, for your town for a number of years. And so this is a huge deal. But did you notice what is not mentioned in these first two verses? In fact, what's not mentioned in the whole 11 verses of this, of this story. It's not mentioned who was at the wedding other than Jesus and his disciples and his mum. It's not mentioned whose wedding it was. We're never, we don't know who it was. We don't know who was getting married. It could have been Abraham and Annie getting married. It could have been David and Drusilla or Moses and Mary. We just don't know. Because when the camera shifts to this wedding, it's not the bride and groom who is front row center. It is Jesus. It is Jesus who we know from Genesis chapter 2 gave us the gift of marriage. And now Jesus himself is at the gift of marriage celebrating with these people. And yet it all goes bad. Have a look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This is a huge deal because in the first century, just like us, wine was a thing of celebration. In fact, probably more than us. Wine was quite expensive back in the day. And so this may be the only wine that some people have drunk in years and yet it's all gone. This is a huge faux pas. I don't know if you have the spiritual gift of, of doing or saying embarrassing things, but I think that's my spiritual gift. Um, a number of year, uh, a few years ago, when I first came here, we started up a youth group, which Tim is now running and doing an amazing job with his leaders. And I was... Um, I had this thing that I would do in the middle of youth group. We would uh, get all the kids to stand up and I would say, sit down if you ate wheat bix and, you know, they would sit down. Sit down if you, I don't know, have blue shoes or whatever. And then there would be one person standing up. We would get them out the front. I'd stand on a seat and I would interview them. And I can remember um, figuring out that, uh, that a lot of the kids with Chinese backgrounds had a Chinese middle name. And when I asked them what that Chinese name meant, they always had cool like names, like you know, lotus flower or something like that. And there was one girl that she was she came along for a few times and she got interviewed and she's from the Asian background. I remember her turning to her and saying, So um, what's your cool Chinese middle name? And she goes, I don't have one because I'm Korean. <laughs> and everyone laughed, and of course I went so embarrassed, I went so red. And that's, that's a faux pas. But, but this faux pas is, is, is a billion times worse than that. This faux pas is a bit like I remember going to playing at a wedding gig. And I can remember the guy who put the band together said to me, oh, hands, guess what? We're going to get paid half up front in cash. And I was like, that's great because everyone loves cash. And so we went to, the, went to it and I said, hey, where's the cash? He goes, no, one, they haven't given it to us. And so he went up to uh, the groom's family. The groom's family was paying for everything and he said, guess what? If we're not paid within the next 10 minutes, when they have their first dance, we're going to hold all our, all our instruments as if we're ready to play. And then, we're, then I'm going to say, the groom's family was meant to pay us 1500 bucks, and they haven't done it, so we're going home. 
and 10 minutes later, he had three grand in his hand, a whole, whole amount. But can you imagine what would happen, the scandal that would happen if he said that? Well, that's the kind of scandal we've got here. This is a massive faux pas. This, this brings so much shame to the family. And yet, what does Mary do? Mary, the mother of Jesus, says, hey, we've got no more wine because she goes to him. And he replies, verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Did anyone read that and just go, Jesus is being a bit harsh with his mum? Just a little bit, right? When I first read that earlier this week when I was preparing it, I was thinking, Jesus is lucky that he didn't have my mum because Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross, you know? But here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He talks about his hour not yet coming. And, and, and in John's Gospel, there's some really specific words and one that, that mean more than, you know, on first glance that they actually mean. And one of those words is hour. And that hour points forward to the time when Jesus is going to die and rise again. And, and at that point, the, the, his glory is going to be shown in all its fullness. And what Jesus is saying here is, hey, woman, my, my time has not yet come to start kind of showing the world who I am. It's, it's not the time. And yet, he will do that. And, and the reason why I think he actually goes and saves this wedding is just out of compassion. I, 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 don't, I don't see that in the text. There's not, no verse there that says Jesus had compassion on the bride and groom. I, I just think that fits in with Jesus' general character. But one of the things here which is really interesting is this, that Jesus, in a, in a culture which family reigns supreme, he actually pushes his mum's desires to one side and says, this is actually what I'm on about, mum. In fact, mum, you're not setting the agenda. I am. I'm, I'm here in control. And, and one of the things that if you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, what you will see is that Jesus is continually putting distance between him and his mum almost every time. It's almost like he is saying, my family, my culture says my family is, is utmost important. But guess what? What's utmost importance to me is doing what I've been put on earth to do. To, to go to the cross, to die and to rise again. You, you see, Jesus' divine mission always takes centre stage. And not even his mum can throw him off that mission. Not even his mum can say, hey, Jesus, you need to change your mission. No, Jesus sets the agenda. Um, I've got an Xbox at home, and uh, a couple of months ago, uh, we bought a game that we all could play because I've just either got violent games or basketball games, and my kids don't want to play the violent the uh, basketball games, and my sons want to play the... Uh, sorry, my kids don't want to play the basketball games. My sons want to play the violent games, but we say no. So we got this, uh, this Olympic game, games game. It's not really a good game, but my kids love it. And one of the things that you can do is you can make your own avatar or character. Um, my daughter, Emma, because she's so brilliantly creative, spent like a couple of hours making the perfect person just to look like her. doesn't really look like her, but she had a really good go at it, right? And, and it's cute when there's a game or something like that where you can kind of make your own person. 
But so many of us, when we come to Jesus, what we try to do is the same thing. We kind of make our own Jesus. What we try and set his agenda instead of him setting our agenda. We try and say, hey, Jesus would have believed this and he would have done this and he wouldn't have done this. And ironically, what happens is we make a Jesus in our own image. We don't let him set the agenda. We don't, say to, we don't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you on about? We, we actually make a Jesus in our image. See, but as we saw with Jesus and his mum, Jesus won't be changed. He is the one who says what he is on about and not on about. And we are the ones, excuse me, that bow our knee to him. So I want to ask you, what is your picture of Jesus? And where do you get it from? Is it from from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? and the rest of the New Testament? Or is it something that you have created in your head, you have just made a Jesus that really comfortably fits in your life? Can I just say, if if the Jesus you believe in comfortably fits in your life, it's not the real Jesus. I have been following Jesus now for 27 years, and every time I read the Gospels, Jesus makes me uncomfortable because he points out parts of my life that, that I have to change if I want to keep following him. And he's going to do that for you too. And he's going to do that because he loves you. He is the one who died for you and then says, because I have died for you, here's how you should live. So what we should do is come to the four Gospels and see Jesus for who he is and we bow our knee and say, you set the agenda for my life. And so that's why it's important over the next couple of uh, next uh, few weeks leading up to Easter that we really look at who Jesus is. And maybe you want to take this time to join one of our growth groups so that you can study who Jesus is. These times where you're actually going to read a chapter of the Gospels each day with the idea of getting to know who Jesus truly is. No matter where you're at with Jesus, that would be a great spiritual endeavor for you to partake in. Jesus here says even to his mum, but also to us. I set the agenda here. The problem is there's no wine. But let's have a look at the miracle that happens. Have a look at six with me. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews to ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I find this an amazing miracle. That there's, there's these stone water jars carrying between 480 and 720 litres of, of water. Jesus asks them to be filled up. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't do any magic. He doesn't touch them. I, I get the impression that Jesus may be, even be sitting down in this whole time. He's like, okay, just fill those up. 
So, okay, they're filled. Okay, just, just get a cup, take some to the master banquet. Done. Done. Can you see the power of Jesus? We're just plain words of instruction. Jesus turns water into wine, Mount Franklin into Molbeck, Perrier into Dom Perion, H2O into C2H5OH. Yeah, and I googled that last one because I wasn't good at science. But with just mere words, you see here the power of Jesus. See, and what's interesting is that the whole family, the, groom, the bride and groom, and, and the master of the ceremony, they don't even know that this crisis has been averted. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they just said, hey, that was a great wedding. And yet, only a few people knew what Jesus had really done in saving the day. But, but what, is the, what does this miracle mean? Is it just a nice story where Jesus actually saves the day or is it so much more than that? Well, in John's Gospel, John gives us little clues and, and the things that seem to be a bit of extra detail that are not needed are usually the things that we've got to pay attention to. And I wonder if you saw that little bit of extra detail that you're like, I'm not sure why he's put this in, in verse 6. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. What John is saying here is that it's these big stone water jars. And what, what did the Jews do? They would go and, and they would maybe wash their hands and, uh, and, and that was a thing for ceremony. It was to say that they were ritually clean. It was something that they believed that their religion told them to do. And yet Jesus turns that water that was there for ceremonial cleansing into the best wine. All the way through the Old Testament, the, one of the things that the Messiah would bring is this new age of celebration and feasting. And one of the things that at the center of that celebration and feasting was wine. And so what John is saying here is this, that Jesus brings in this new age, not an age of law and ritual, but of feasting, of celebration. He is the one that brings in this new great age. And how does he bring, bring this age in? He brings this age by going to the cross. The old, old order of things at the cross was taken away because sin has been forgiven. Life and hope is there at the cross. And Jesus cries out on the cross, I thirst. It was out of his thirst that he gives this new wine to us all, this new wine of celebration, of grace, of joy, of hope. So when you come to God, don't come through law and obedience. Come to God through Jesus and you'll find grace and you'll find joy and you'll find forgiveness and you'll find hope. See, so many of us get that twisted. We come to God through the wrong thing and we, we wonder why our, our faith is just life-sucking instead of life-giving. 
over the last few weeks, I've, I've been reading a book by this lady, and, and she's a great writer. And, and she grew up in a very rule-based church. So there was rules for everything, how you should have your hair, what you should wear and not everything, what songs you should listen to. Um, and, you know, as she, was, uh, as she was talking about it, I was like, man, I wouldn't be welcome in that church based on the songs I listen to. And, and it was very interesting. She actually rejected the faith of her, of her youth and she just went on this kind of uh, decade bender of partying and alcoholism. And then she actually came back to, to, to Jesus and the church. But she has now, and then she became a Lutheran minister, a Lutheran pastor. And because of her upbringing, what happened was she kind of rejected the Bible. She, but she still loves the Bible, but she rejects so much in it. And she totally reads it totally differently. Because she sees the Bible as something coming from her youth which was all about rules and regulations. And I, and I wish, I wish I, when she was figuring out her faith, I, I would, would have been able to chat with her and say, don't reject the Bible because of the stance that your, the church of your youth took. Because if I can say this, I think they got Jesus wrong. I think they got Jesus wrong. Because Jesus is not about rules and regulations and everything. Jesus is about forgiveness. Going, uh, dealing with your guilt so you can go guilt-free. Jesus is about you having joy in him and celebrating. I dare say some of you guys are really tired. You guys are tired because you have, you've, you've tried to live to this standard that Jesus sets. And, and you're tired because you're like, I'm not sure I can hit that all the time. In fact, it's, it's exhausting. I don't think I hit it much, if at all. And yet what I want to say to you is, I think you might have Jesus a bit wrong there. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I've died for you, so if you live to this standard, you can know me and I will love you. No, Jesus says, I loved you, I love you, I died for you. Come and experience freedom. Freedom from sin and guilt and shame. Freedom to have joy and freedom to celebrate. That's the Jesus of the Bible. But, but, but it's also, well, one of the things, if you are tired, if you are just wondering whether you're you know, meeting Jesus' standards, can I say, please come and talk to me or talk to Tim or talk to your growth group leader or something. Come read the Gospels and see that Jesus is one that brings you joy, brings you forgiveness, not rules and religion. But also we've got to ask as a church, what kind of church do we want to be? Do we want to be the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be? Or do we want to be the kind of church of, of this kind of Pharisaic religion, of rules and regulations, of guilt? Or do we want to be a church filled and overflowing with grace and joy and hope? When you think of this church, do, don't you want to be part of a church that is more on about feasting than fasting? 
Don't you want to be part of a church that is far feel, more filled with joyous laughter rather than drudging law-keeping? Don't you want to be part of a church which is all on about seeing Jesus' praises rather than sighing over the sin of others? Don't you want to be a part of a church that gets who Jesus is and gets the freedom that we have in him? And so we're a church of celebration, a church of the new wine. Because that's what Jesus not only brings to your life or should bring, he brings to all of our lives, he brings to our church. That is the beautiful miracle that Jesus performs here, that if we look through, we see what he brings to our lives. And finally, let's have a look at the last point, the sign in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Galilee was a sign which revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Again, I think it's beautiful that Jesus does his first miracle in a bogan backwater of Israel. Not in the center of town where all, all the lights are shining. He does it for a small little wedding. Which just shows, shows us all, it doesn't matter who you are, you're never too insignificant for Jesus to love you and Jesus to care. But, but, but secondly, I wonder if you saw that word, signs. Well, in John's Gospel, John actually calls the miracles of Jesus signs. And I think that's really important because what do signs do? They point to a reality. And, and this sign pointed to the fact that he's full of glory. Where it pointed to the fact that he revealed who, a bit of who he is. Um, as you know, I grew up in Moree and uh, we would come to Sydney uh, two to three times a year and this it took about eight hours. And uh, this is before iPads, this is before air conditioning in cars. Well, actually, it wasn't before air conditioning. We were just too povo to have air conditioning in our car. And, uh, you know, we only had an AM, FM radio. So for most of the trip, we couldn't hear anything on the radio. And uh, me and my sister, we used to get terribly car sick, so we couldn't read, so we had nothing to do. So my, my parents would just go, okay, see, who's the first one who can see a red car, all that kind of stuff, games like that. And one of the games that we played was, um, see who can find the funniest sign. And one year, I, I, I won because I saw this sign that said, injured wildlife ring wires, and I thought, man, I'd like to see that, right? Hello, I'm a possum and I'm injured, can you come get me, right? Now, what do signs do? They point to a reality. They say Sydney's there 300 Ks, or you need to do this, or you need to do that. Here, this sign that Jesus performs points to him. And he says, he is the one that is all who you will see glory in. He is the one who one day will be glorified by dying and rising again. He is the one that you and I devote our lives to, enjoy it with joy. He is the one who we take on his agenda. He is the one that we're totally sold out on as a church, that we are desperate to see him glorified and see People come to know him. He is the one that one day will come back to judge the living and the dead. So we do our mission as a church with urgency. He is that one. 
is that one? Have you bowed the knee to this Jesus? Are you on board with his mission? Can you feel his urgency? Have you got joy in him today? Let's pray. Our Father God, I thank you for revealing who Jesus is to us all the way through the Bible, but we thank you especially in this passage. Lord, I pray for those of us who have got Jesus wrong, who thought Jesus is all about rules and regulations. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus for who he is and that we would have joy in him because of the new age that he brings, a new age where our sins are forgiven, a new age because of his resurrection from the dead. We have got hope eternal. And Lord, we pray that we would live for him, no matter where we're at with you. Lord, I pray that all of us today have had a a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Those of us who walked in here not knowing you, I pray that you you have caused their heart to see who Jesus is. Those of us who definitely know Jesus, but we just feel lackluster, I pray that you have lit a fire in our hearts again. Those of us who are hurting, may we have found healing today. May we all walk away from today having changed because we've encountered the Lord Jesus who brings us not only forgiveness but joy and celebration in this new great age. Amen.